I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5, verse 5, and then we're going to jump ahead a little bit and read from Matthew 18, 21, verse 35. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Then Peter came up to him, and then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went, and put him in prison, until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw, that, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do, this, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thank you, Drew. Um, my name is Harrison. I am the associate pastor here at Hope Chapel. And if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. Um, please come introduce yourself uh, after the service. Um, in, in Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader and his fleet of starships called Star Destroyers, Destroyers are coming in at light speed to attack a rebel base on the planet Hoth. And Admiral Ozzel, who's in command of these spaceships, uh, pulls the ships out of light speed a little too early. Uh, and it alerts the rebels to their presence and they lose the element of surprise. And the rebels put up a defense shield around the planet they were going to attack. And you see Darth Vader is very upset, uh, and he pulls up Admiral Ozzel on the screen on, over Zoom, and he delivers the famous line, um, you have failed me for the last time, Admiral. And you see Ozzel begin to go, as you realize Darth Vader is choking him through the force over Zoom from a different ship. And uh, while simultaneously giving commands to the guy next to him, Captain Piet, he says, uh, you are in command now, Admiral Piet, while the other guy just falls to the ground. 
at the same time. So any movie in which a bad guy runs an organization, a common theme of that organization is a total lack of mercy. Someone fails in their task. Someone was negligent. Someone was too weak and got defeated by the good guys. The outcome does not look good for that henchman. There will be no mercy. That henchman is likely not going to make it to the end of the movie. Most competitive environments in our world can operate like this. Uh, Showing mercy can be akin to uh, allowing weakness. Uh, Any imperfection or mistake that's overlooked creates a weak link in a chain of an organization. The weakness is not to be tolerated. If you think about forgiving an enemy, um, that can give the enemy power back and can threaten your own position of power. Uh, Most athletes go into games with a mindset of no mercy. Dominate the other. Never let up. Don't give them anything. I've seen no mercy as a slogan on a t-shirt. I've also seen no quarter on a t-shirt, which means take no prisoners. You've seen take no prisoners on a t-shirt, which actually is a war crime policy uh, that is cool to wear on your shirt. Uh, The philosopher Nikio Machiavelli was one of the main thinkers to publicly embrace uh, cruel, harsh, no mercy kind of treatment. He says, as a leader, you either need to indulge others around you, or they need to be utterly destroyed. Um, He says, if you're going to injure them, you have to injure them so greatly that they're totally unable to retaliate. In other words, it's just not safe for you as a leader to offer mercy. Someone might come back and get you. In the words of the rapper 50 Cent, uh, show no love, love will get you killed. This, sadly, could be the world's map. People who experience shalom are the ones who dominate the others. The ones at the top of the map are the ones that showed no mercy, who protected their share at all costs, and who got rid of any weak link that was in their way to the top. But here comes Jesus with his disciples, like he's done in the other Beatitudes, and he's turning the map upside down, and he's saying, actually, you know, the ones at the top are the ones who were merciful to others. They're the ones who are going to receive mercy and experience shalom. So we've been going through these Beatitudes, which Jesus often turns that map upside down, and uh, they're blessings from a sermon Jesus gave uh, that are counterintuitive. And at this point uh, in the Beatitudes, we're not really that surprised that this is the next Beatitude. So to, to recap, the person Jesus has been describing in the other Beatitudes, the blessed person, he says, Blessed is the one who sees themselves spiritually as poor, sees themselves as a sinner in need of abundant mercy. Blessed is the one who mourns their own sin. Blessed is the one who sees himself as meek compared to others, who is small and looks up to others. Blessed is the one who longs most of all to be right before God, to be accepted by God, to be good, hungers and thirsts to be good. When this kind of person, who encapsulates all those qualities, is sinned against, how would you expect them to respond? Would they respond with harshness and cruelty and judgment? No. Because of their own posture of desperate need of the mercy of God, you would expect them to be incredibly merciful. And that's what Jesus tells us. Now, we need to unpack this idea of mercy. Mercy is not a word, if you're like me, you don't use it in your vocabulary much outside of talking about God and us. What does it mean for a human to be merciful to another human? Uh, Which is what Jesus is referring to here. 
So I want to look at two parables to unpack this. Uh, Parables that lay out two key aspects, definitions of the biblical word for mercy. And so looking at these two parables, we're going to learn to show mercy. We must first forgive the sinner and to relieve the sufferer. To show mercy, we must forgive the sinner and relieve the sufferer. First, let me pray before we dive in. Father, um, we ask this morning that you would show us what true mercy is today. Uh, Lord, we want badly to experience your mercy when we meet you at the last day. Um, So would you, Lord, teach us to be merciful to others that we might have hope of experiencing your mercy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first parable, uh, Matthew 18, is in your bulletin, and it shows us to show mercy, we must first forgive the sinner. Um, So uh, the meaning of the word mercy in this parable is forgiveness of sin, and it's in the context of Peter asking Jesus, as uh, Drew read for us, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Basically, how many times until enough is enough? As many as seven times, would you say? Now, uh, the rabbis at their time had a lot of thinking about this, and they generally thought it was three to four times until enough was enough. And so Peter is going over that, and he thinks Jesus is going to be pretty happy with his extra forgiveness that he's saying. Um, And Jesus replies, Peter, it's not seven times, but 77 times. And then he tells a story to explain this. Um, So read with me, starting in verse 23, the story that explains this radical forgiveness. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, this is an astronomical amount of money. A talent is 6,000 denarii. And one denarius was what you made in a day as a servant. So a day's day's wages. So quick math, 10,000 talents is 60 million days of work for a servant. It's a lot. It's like someone saying a billion dollars or a trillion dollars today until you actually see a YouTube video explaining it. You can't really wrap your mind around how much money that is. He could never pay this off in his lifetime. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the master decides to get the most money out of this guy possible, which is selling him into servanthood. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Of course, he can't pay him everything. But verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the master's heart breaks for the servant's situation, his family, and he decides to forgive him, meaning the master decides to lose every bit of that money and never get it back. Out of pity, he absorbs the other man's debt. Verse 28, then when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now this hundred denarii is a hundred days wages. So it's about a third of your yearly salary. It's not nothing, but it's also not one billion dollars either. It's a lot lower than what he was forgiven. And so How does he respond? And seizing him, he begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported their master all that had taken place. And the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Here's where our word comes in. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from his heart, from your heart. So to answer Peter's question about forgiveness of sin, Jesus tells this parable in which the master is God. He's forgiven a servant. You can insert Peter here as a servant. An astronomical amount of sin has been forgiven. And if that servant, Peter, then does not turn and show mercy to his brother who sins against him in a much smaller way, Jesus is saying God will not show mercy to him. God will require him to pay his actual debt, which he can never fully pay back. And that's a clear reference to hell. This parable is a warning, a negative articulation of what Jesus is saying positively in the Beatitude. Beatitude says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The parable is, woe to you who do not show mercy, for you will receive none. Jesus often repeats this theme in the Gospels, actually. Uh, In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has us pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. As does not mean while, as some people might assume, forgive us our debts while at the same time I'm going about forgiving others. The as means, God, forgive us our debts to the extent, only to the extent to which we have forgiven others their debts. In other words, God, use the measure for me that I have used for my neighbors. When you think about it, that's a pretty terrifying prayer. If you're a Christian in here, do you know how many times in your life you've asked God to do that for you? Jesus knows this radical prayer would raise questions, so he explains it in the next, right after the Lord's Prayer. He says, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Matthew 6, 14 through 15, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So really, Jesus couldn't be more clear. And this concept is so important that he puts it in the Beatitudes. He tells a super long parable about it, and he includes it in the Lord's Prayer. He wants you to pray for this every day. Forgive me only what I've forgiven others. Now, this might feel scary to you. This is the first time you've heard that. You might be wondering, Harrison, how does this match, though, with these other verses in the Bible that say, I'm saved by God's grace alone, not by my own doing? Uh, I'm not saved by my own showing of mercy, right? Now, I could answer that, and I think theologians have a great answer uh, to how those go together. Um, But I'm not—I decided to not actually give you that answer right now. I'd be happy to talk about it in a one-on-one with you um, if you're really concerned. But I I don't want to give it because this parable we just read is most of all a warning. And I don't want to lessen the warning for you. I don't want to explain it away— in any way. I don't want to try and teach Jesus theology. Far far be it from me to do that. Uh, Jesus doesn't qualify this because it's true by itself. And he wants you to be warned. 
If you are not merciful, you will receive no mercy. Our beatitude is the imitation version of that warning. Be merciful and you will receive mercy. Jesus wants us to know it couldn't be more important for us to show mercy. And in this parable, mercy means forgiving the sinner. And so how do we actually forgive practically? What does it look like in our real lives? Uh, Using the image Jesus gives us of debt here in the story, forgiveness is when you've been wronged, uh, choosing to absorb the other person's debt yourself rather than requiring it from them. So when you've been wrong, choosing to absorb the other person's debt yourself rather than requiring it from them. So say uh, everyone's going back to school here in a minute. Let's say you you show up at high school as a freshman and a bully punches you in the face for no reason. You have been sinned against. You have two options. Um, One, you could immediately take, uh, make him pay for what he did to you. Uh, You know, a little thunder, a little lightning, bam. Um... A few, a few eggs to the old house or the car, you know. Um, you can make him pay the debt, uh, which is otherwise known as taking revenge. And it's, it's the opposite, the antithesis of forgiveness. Revenge leads to more pain, more sin, escalation on both sides, uh, more resentment. Option two would be you absorb that punch and say, I will choose to not punch you back. I will take this costly payment on myself. I will not become like you, violent, just because you were violent with me. I will not harbor ill will towards you. I will not fume in my bed for the next four years of high school. I release this debt and vengeance and give you love in return for your hatred. I will move forward with my life. I forgive you. If you were to take option two, it involves two things. First, there's a formula that you you actually need to say out loud. You literally say to the person, I forgive you. The words are important because there's a transaction taking place, an absorbing of the debt that both of you should be clear about that allows you both to move forward. I'm paying for this. I'm not holding you to this. And second, forgiveness is much more than saying the words. There is a genuine choice of a heart posture that you have to continue to make daily sometimes over a long period of time where you are uh, releasing the ill will and vengefulness and resentment. And that's only possible by remembering how big of a sinner you are and just how much God has forgiven you. You release that vengefulness because you could easily be the sinner on the other side in this scenario. You have been the sinner in thousands of other scenarios. And should you walk in their shoes and live their life, you probably would have made a similar choice, maybe even worse. And in your life, God has shown mercy to all that for much worse things. And because of that, you're choosing to treat this person as God has treated you. Forgiveness done right is incredibly powerful for both people involved. For instance, for the one sinned against in this scenario, your forgiveness of the sinner frees you from the other person's hold on your life. You don't have to get caught in a never-ending cycle of revenge, and you don't have to hold on to poisonous ill will and resentment every night in your bed. I love this Nelson Mandela quote. He says, resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. When you resent someone, 
harbor that ill will over a long period of time. You're drinking poison, but they don't die, but you do. Forgiveness frees you from that life, allows you to move forward. And for the one who is forgiven, forgiveness is a huge unmerited gift. It's a surprising, cycle-breaking testament to the gospel of Jesus. It's Jean Valjean. It can change someone's life forever. It gives them a more beautiful picture of life and relationships than they've ever seen. Sin does not have the final word in their life anymore. You have the power to give that to others through your forgiveness. For a decent part of my life, until college really, I did not know about the concept of forgiveness personally. My assumption with the relationships was that when hurt was done to me, or I hurt the other person, uh, you didn't talk about it, and you couldn't repair it. It was an open wound that you had to carry and either beat yourself up over it if you were the one who had done the sinning, or lay in your bed and be consumed by hatred for the other person if they had sinned against you, and you hoped that time somehow would one day heal it all. And those open wounds infected my relationships and myself. And I remember it was so amazing to experience my first forgiveness in Christian community. I remember getting angry at a roommate in college and then calming down, realizing I was wrong, and them saying, I forgive you, man. It's totally okay. I would have gotten angry at that too. And I was like, what? (laughs) You forgive me? I was so thrown off because suddenly there's a possibility of real repair, of healing, of moving forward. I actually ended feeling closer to that person than I had before. This is life in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus invites us into it today with our beatitude. So I wonder for you, who might you need to fully forgive today? Who has hurt you deeply lately? Are you holding any ill will towards that person today? Remember the mercy Jesus has shown to you over the years of your life. Think about the mercy you want to receive from Jesus when you see him on the last day. What kind of measure do you want him to use for you? Use that measure with your neighbor. And do you want to be free of that poison, that ill will, the resentment that can kill us? And do you want to move forward in love? Now you might be wondering, Harrison, I'm afraid to forgive because this person might walk all over me if I do. I'll get hurt again. I'll become a doormat. I want to name this is a really important concern. Biblically, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation to a relationship. These are two different concepts that sometimes go together, sometimes don't. The Bible would say you're required to forgive everyone in your life, no matter how destructive they are, whether they ever acknowledge they're wrong or not, whether they ever change, you must forgive them from your heart and seek no revenge or ill will based on Jesus' forgiveness of you. That's forgiveness, and it requires nothing from the other person. You can actually forgive a dead person, um, and you should. If you, if you have uh, ill will or resentment towards a dead person, you can forgive them and move forward with your life. Reconciliation, on the other hand, is being restored to a relationship after a break in that relationship. And this is not a blanket requirement for everyone in the world like forgiveness is. There are many times the Bible commands us actually to not reconcile, to avoid a person. Scoffers, false teachers, 
blatantly unrepentant members in church, those who are utterly destructive to those around them, the Bible often calls us it's wise to avoid those people. Unlike forgiveness, reconciliation to a meaningful relationship after a hurt requires something from both sides. Requires apologies, desires to do things differently, genuine attempts to change. So if you think back to, back to the bully situation, if the bully at school has a daily habit of punching you, and no signs of changing that habit, you should absolutely not walk into a punch every morning. You can put strong boundaries between you and that person and avoid that bully. And you can forgive him in your heart and not be in close relationship with him. This category shows up for us sometimes in a fallen world. You may be romantically involved with someone who has regularly cheated on you or physically abuses you. Should you stay in a relationship with them? Should you reconcile? Likely, no. But should you forgive them from your heart? You must, for your sake and for their sake. So that's, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. mercy. And for us to show mercy, we must forgive the sinner. The second meaning of mercy in the Bible shows up in another parable, and it's to show mercy, we must relieve the sufferer. Now this definition of mercy is what people meant when they cried out to Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. These are people who are sick or blind or lame or beggars, and they're not asking for forgiveness of sin, though they need that, and often Jesus gives them that too. Um, But they're asking for compassion and help in their suffering, which Jesus also gives them. And Jesus elaborates on the importance of showing this kind of mercy in Luke 18, uh, 19-31. This is not in your bulletin, but if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Um, Luke 18, 19-31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Jesus is talking about a rich man who uses his money, money mainly for himself. Uh, verse 20, And at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So this describes Lazarus as having a miserable existence. He's starving. He desires to be fed, but it's implied that he's not fed with anything, not even the scraps. And dogs are licking his pus-filled sores. Ugh. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy. There's the word. Have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Basically, the rich man and Lazarus have switched spots in the afterlife. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This parable is another warning. It's a negative version of our beatitude. Jesus is implying the rich man did not show Lazarus any mercy, did not show any compassion for his suffering, did not use his resources to relieve Lazarus' impossibly hard experience of life. 
He showed no mercy. Therefore, the rich man does not receive mercy on the other side, even when he cries out in torment from Hades. He just wants a little water to cool the flame. But no, a chasm has been fixed and none can cross. Woe to you who do not show mercy, for you will receive none. This version of mercy, like the other version, to Jesus is vitally important. And so what does it mean for us practically to show mercy in this way? In Deuteronomy 15, uh, 7, God commands Israel to show this kind of mercy to the poor. And God breaks this mercy into two parts. He says, do not harden your hearts against the poor and do not shut their, your hands against the poor. So do not harden your hearts and do not shut your hands. So to harden your hearts means to refuse to feel anything in response to someone else's plight. It's hearing about someone going through something really hard and explaining it away so that you're not emotionally impacted. It might could sound like this. Oh, uh, he cheated on her and left her? Remember, I told you she, he shouldn't have married, uh, she shouldn't have married him in the first place. I mean, she, she brought this on herself. Or, um, I mean, they were the ones who chose to have more than two kids in the first place. I'm not going to feel bad about that. I'm not going in another one of their showers or making them another meal. Or, uh, of course she died. She was old. They should have seen it coming. Just get over it. She's, she, you know. Hardening your heart to your neighbor's suffering keeps you from having to enter in emotionally. And God forbids doing that. He says you shouldn't expect mercy from him if you close your heart to others. On the other hand, softening your heart is you, should be sh- you, you being shaken up by the suffering of others. Identifying with them in their suffering. I have no words. That's so hard. I cannot imagine what that feels like. And you can always enter into suffering, no matter the situation, because before God, remember we talked about earlier in a previous sermon, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You, too, are a suffering sinner in need of mercy, this kind of mercy, and God has shown it to you. And so we must have this compassion for others. So that's the first one, is not um, hardening your heart. And the second one, God says, is not closing your hand. That person needs help. And James tells us in his book, it's not enough for us to say nice words or even pray for someone when they need help. Uh, Help them. What good is that if you don't? True mercy is relieving the sufferer. Sharing your time, your energy, your money with them. Uh, It's the opposite of what the rich man did in this parable. True mercy softening your heart and opening your hand. We see Jesus do both of these perfectly in John 11. Uh, John 11 is the story of when Jesus' friend Lazarus died. And he shows up to a crowded house where everyone's weeping. And it says in John 11 verse 33, When Jesus saw everyone weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved uh, in his spirit, literally in the Greek dictionary, is snorting like a horse in deep rage. Uh, meaning Jesus is angry and rageful at death, seeing the impact that it's having on his friends. And so he makes a noise. And then he's greatly troubled, meaning he shifts from anger to deep sadness, the point of almost despairing. Greatly troubled is weakness. It's losing your composure. It's almost exactly what they were feeling at their loss. Jesus is getting overwhelmed by their suffering. And then it does overwhelm Jesus. 
he reaches a breaking point in one of the most incredible parts of the Bible. Jesus falls down and weeps for his friends. He cries. That's a soft heart to the suffering of others. It's a window into why Jesus came to earth. It's his compassion for us. But he doesn't stop there in the story either. He doesn't shut his hand to their suffering. He snorts again. Where have you laid him? And then he cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out from the grave, alive, after being dead for four days. And though we may not be able to resurrect somebody like that, John 11 is a model of how we are to respond as Christians to suffering. With compassion first, and then using our power and Jesus' power to bring real relief to the sufferer. So given that, I wonder in your life, who's suffering around you right now? Have you let that person's suffering affect you like Jesus did here? Have you softened your heart to them? Have you felt what it might feel like to be them right now? And how open is your hand towards them? What have you done to try to relieve that suffering? What could you do today to relieve their suffering? Now, like forgiveness, this requires a caveat. We must still be discerning when we open our heart and our hand to someone. There are con people out there. Not everyone is truly in need who says they're in need. And there are some who may say their need is one thing, like money, and that may be a temporary need, but a real need is something more substantial, like a friend to walk with in uh, recovering. So we must be discerning about how to open our hand for folks effectively. But in the midst of that, it's the posture of your heart and hand that are most important to Jesus. Your discernment cannot become an excuse to harden your heart and shut your hand every time you come upon someone who expresses a need. Imagine what excuses this rich man gave himself to make sense of his not helping Lazarus. So even as we are discerning, we must most of all continue with that soft heart and open hand. And I think we will get taken advantage of here and there. But we take advantage of Jesus too, don't we? So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this means forgiving the sinner and relieving the suffering. I want to end with this. Uh, There isn't anything harder than, on the one hand, forgiving somebody who's cut you really deep. On the other hand, giving away your time, your energy, your money, your emotions regularly to those around you while you're in need to. It's not much harder than those two things, right? How can we be motivated to do this so that we can find mercy from God at the end of the day? ourselves the answer only answer is god himself must give us this power when yahweh passed before moses in exodus 34 6 and introduced himself for the first time in scripture he did so with the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love the first descriptor god gives of himself is merciful it's at the core of who God is. We see that mercy on display throughout the Old Testament. A God whose mercies are new every morning, continually forgiving the sin and relieving the suffering of his people despite their stubbornness over and over and over. 
And then Jesus was born, God incarnate, the perfect image of the invisible God. And we saw him spend his life showing mercy to the suffering, healing the sick, freeing the afflicted, giving wisdom to the seeking. And then his mercy culminates in the ultimate act of relieving the suffering and forgiving the sinner. As out of compassion for us, he took our punishment in hell on himself on the cross that we might be forgiven. In God's story, the master becomes the debtor. The rich man trades places with Lazarus. That's God's mercy for you. That's the only thing that can motivate your mercy for others. So let's think about that today. and Ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to show that kind of mercy for others around us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Amen.